That would be Rebecca McLaughlin, who is the author of the book that we are currently um, basing our sermon series on. Now, our series is called Confronting Christianity. Her book is called Confronting Christianity. And to be honest with you, we could listen to her all day because that British accent is pretty awesome, right? <laughs> Enjoyed that, right? Um, her, the book is amazing. If you haven't bought it yet, we want to encourage you to get that. There is a link if you, if you scan the QR code in your bulletin. Um, you can find a link to the Amazon page for that book is on sale or it's not that hard to search yourself. But um, we are doing a series of sermons on that basic question, uh, the, the 12 questions that she raises in the book that are kind of the, 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 what she believes, and I, I think she's pretty right on on this, are the questions that skeptics and, and, and those who are looking at our faith are questioning and asking about our belief in Jesus, our religion. And so um, it's super helpful, and I would encourage you to read alongside. We are not preaching her book. We're preaching Christ from the scriptures, but trying to address the questions that she also addresses in the book. And so here's what I'll tell you is read the book because I'm not going to say the same thing she says. I may allude to some things, and our other guys who are preaching this summer may allude to some things that are said in the book, but we're not just going to give you the bullet points of the book. We're going to take you to the scriptures and show you how she's coming to her answers, things like that. Um, John Lennon set a vision for the world in his famous and one of the most sung songs of all history. Imagine, you know the song, right? Um, and it sounds like, if you just listen to it, it sounds like this song that's really about coming together, uh, that, that we're all for the same goal. We all want peace and unity in our humanity. And you know, as a Christian, I, no way we can stand and say, no, we don't believe in that. But if you actually... Read the lyrics of the song, you will come to realize that the song has a very clear vision. And we, like I said, it, it is just so sung, and most people don't even pause to think about. The vision set by John Lennon in the song Imagine is a song where there is no heaven, no religion, where there is nothing worth dying or living for, no belief that you hold that is worth living or dying for. Nothing that really matters. If we got rid of religion, if we got rid of you crazy people who are coming to church and believing these insane things, the world would be a better place. Now, she, Rebecca mentioned a couple things about this hypothesis that, that kind of had, you know, in the 60s, early 70s when that song came out, was kind of what was being thought was that, you know, hey, what's going to happen is the world's going to have this flood of atheism. And actually, that's not true. It is happening. The rise of the nuns, and we're not talking about these ladies who run around in habits and they're part of the Catholic Church. We're talking about the people who, when they check a box and they're asked their religious preference, they just check none. The rise of the nuns is a real thing in our culture. People are abandoning organized religion. They're actually not becoming atheists, though. They're not becoming agnostic. People are super spiritual. But they're coming to the conclusion that uh, religion, organized religion, is actually a bad thing and something they don't want to be a part of. And so here's, here's Lennon who, who gives us the song, right? Meanwhile, as he is writing the, the song, publishing it, what is happening all around the world at that point during, during the popularity of that song is the rise and the strength of communism, a, 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 a whole view of the world that is based on a whole view of the world that is the living out of the implications of John Lennon's song. And, and of course, what we got with that worldview gaining power was more violence, more, more evil, more human depravity, more denying the, the good. Of it. It, it, the vision didn't work. But maybe we need to pause and look at our own situation and say, but what about the people who are just saying, I, I, I can't buy into organized religion. I just don't think about this. And I was kind of amazed a couple of weeks ago when I was reading our, our wonderful newspaper. I like to read it every week, the, the Eureka Leader. I'm thankful they did an article on our church just a couple of weeks ago, and they've been nothing but kind to us. But a lady wrote kind of an op-ed opinion piece in this. I just want to read this to you. I want you to hear what she says. Title of it's called A New Kind of Church by Caitlin Mary Skaggs. In the uh, Eureka Leader, May 11th, about three in 10 U.S. adults, or 29%, describe themselves as theists, as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular, the nuns. When asked about their religious identity, according to a 2021 Pew Research Center study, I was raised in a religious family, and for the most, lo- most of my life, I attended church every Sunday. But I'm now in the 29% of adults who have stepped away from organized religion. When I was a child, you could find me in the same church pew every Sunday morning. I always enjoyed the weekly ritual. It was time with my family and community. However, the last time I attended church was in 2019. 
The decision to stop going to church was one that I did not consider lightly. I decided to step away from the church due to a number of reasons, but particularly because of a couple of encounters I had with some people in the church. It was the summer of 2019. I had just entered a long relationship. I had been attending this new church for about six months and had met only a couple people in the parish. A woman in the church asked me where my fiancé was because he typically attended church with me, and I told her the news. We had broken up. She told me the reason I was no longer engaged was because I did not pray hard enough or give enough money to the church. I was shocked that someone could think the reason for my breakup was because I was not committed enough to the church. The next week I was back in church and I heard two women behind me chat about an upcoming family event. One woman told the other she was not planning to invite her grandson to the family event because he had a boyfriend and she did not want that in her house. I was so disappointed to hear someone who claims to love God treat her own family that way. So I actually got up and walked out before the service started and I have not been back. I decided I did not want to surround myself with people who did not seem to treat people with kindness. However, in the following weeks, I felt lost and realized that I had uh, something missing, uh, or I was missing the tradition of church. I read an editorial from another publication about how concerts were like church for millennials. The article talked about people who did not want to follow a particular religion anymore, found peace in gathering with people who had similar interests. The article made many parallels between church and concerts, like singing, and it got me to thinking about shifting my idea of church. It's I started thinking that the church could be anything I wanted as long as it made me feel more connected to God or the universe. Now my church, air quotes here, is, uh, quotes in the article, is an activity that makes me feel grounded, close to God, but away from the negativity I experience in the Catholic church. Now on Sunday mornings, you typically can find me on a walk with my dog, Teddy. I like to get out of the house, pick up a coffee, and go for a walk in a, in a new place or park. During those walks, I often have a conversation in my head with God or pray a bit to myself. I found that I like to be alone with my thoughts, and it has helped me see some, of the thing, some things clear. Also, the closest I have felt to God, it's the closest I have felt to God in years. So leader readers, what's your church? Do you still attend traditional church, or do you create a new concept? For yourself, write in and let me know. And what you'll find in this week's leader is several responses to that letter. But it actually kind of broke my heart. Is is people who go to church were kind of mean spirited? It's what I expected. Mainly because it's it's low hanging fruit to publish the meanest of us. And I don't think the leader did that maliciously. It's just easier. I mean, people are pretty passionate about things, but there wasn't a lot of compassion. How do you answer that? And the truth of the matter is, here we are, like, you're here today. You may, be, you may have wandered in off the street. This may be your first Sunday with us. We're thankful you're here. You may be a, a, a lifetime churchgoer, or you may be somebody who's just trying to figure this faith thing out. And you're here today, but a lot of our neighbors, for one reason or another, have kind of looked at church, looked at the idea of getting up and being part of organized religion, looked, uh, looked at the idea of being part of a community of faith, of giving their lives to something that is like this, they have chosen to say, you know, I'm kind of tapping out. I'm, I, I'm not interested. I'm, I, I, I can do spirituality. I can do God on my own. Aren't, aren't we just better off without religion is the question the book raises. And statistically, 40 million adults in the United States have decided the answer to that is yes and have bugged out a church in the last 30 years. I'm going to say that again. 40 million adults in the United States have left church in the last 30 years. Um, Rebecca McLaughlin brought up the fact that this is not the trend globally, and there are actually some metrics that say those numbers are slowing down right now and may begin to turn where people start looking back to the traditions of their youth and some of the things that they sought out. But, but for the last 30 years, this has been one of the biggest trends in religion in our culture. And the truth of the matter is you guys know that because you look at the people who live on your street, who grew up in this church, used to go to that church, used to participate in this church, and they're just out. And what we had was a generation that we called the de-churched. The de-churched are people who used to be part of a religious faith, part of a religious community, used to go to church, and now they're out of church. But what's happening is now their children are actually unchurched. 
They have no religious background, no religious heritage, other than some spiritual platitudes and you find your own way and we'll, get, we'll quote a few Bible verses or give you some kind of spirituality, but nothing that is, is embedded in their, their, um, deep in their souls, deep in their purpose, deep in their psyche. And, and so we've gone from a generation of de-churched to now really a, de- a whole generation of unchurched kids where even in this school, the majority of kids who are hanging out have never really been to any church because their parents bugged out. And they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know who Moses is. They don't know the stories of the Bible. When they hit Christi- Christmas and Easter, they really know nothing of the framework of the core stories that gave us the holidays. They know about a bunny and a fat guy right? And presence. But they don't really understand the core of the story. This is what's happening in our culture. And and part of what we need to do is we need to understand there are reasons for this. And, And when I say we, I mean in Christianity, in the larger faith of our culture, they're, they're raising a question is not unfounded. There's some reasons. Why, why, do, why have people left church? A few reasons real quick. Uh, first of all, that there has been in, in a shift in the way the world, our culture, views Christianity. There's been the end of what we call cultural Christianity. Now, here's the thing. Uh, the, like, I know personal stories of, of people who would, they were like Muslim or agnostic, and they'd move to some small town in Texas somewhere or into some community in the suburbs, and they would go join a Christian church, not because they believed on any level anything the church was promoting, but because it was culturally beneficial to be part of a faith community. It was being in a church was part of, of what it meant to fit into a community, and so people in all kinds of cultures, all kinds of spaces, all kinds of places said, we're going to be part of the church. But it never really deeply impacted them. They kind of went through the rhythms of Sunday morning and, and the traditions and the, and the experience. But it wasn't something that was deeply shaping their lives. In fact, sometimes you found people who actually didn't even believe the things that they sat and listened to every week in and week out. Or at least their lives did not reflect any version of that faith impacting them in a real way. And what's happened over the last 30 years is that Christianity actually went from being profitable and and having a good reputation in our culture uh, up until the early 1990s. From 1990 until about 2015, Christianity was kind of a neutral in our culture. But what's happened since 2015 is this. Our culture, and all you got to do is watch any TV show. If they deal with our religion at all, you're going to find that this is the voice. Our culture now sees Christianity, the faith you and I hold, is a net evil. They think we're the bad guys because we hold to things like the exclusivity of the gospel, certain values, morals, and ethics, things like that. They see us as the evil, and so it's no longer beneficial to be Christian. And a ton of these people were like, I never really was anyway. It's just convenient. It was a convenience thing, and they bugged out. Cultural Christianity has, is being eroded. It's, it's leaving and what's happening, like all over our city here, there are churches that used to run four, five, six, seven hundred people on Sunday morning here, down to 150, 200 people less. Because they've hemorrhaged people who it was beneficial to be in the church culturally, and now it's not. Why go? Add COVID to that and the hard pause and all this stuff, and people just never came back as well. Second reason that, that we find uh, people have left church is because self-reliance and busyness in life um, our, our culture is more and more busy, and we have been told the American dream that just pursue your dreams, your values, and you take that and then put you sports in the middle of it, and you can see why people just don't make it church. It got way out of the habit and the rhythm of it. We're busy. Our kids are involved in so many things, and what we're doing is we're sacrificing our children on the altar of what the world calls success, and it's having real implications. We'll get to that in a minute. Third reason is that... Uh, and, and this is real, that there have been a lot of people who've experienced deep church hurt, deep brokenness from pe- religious people, and, and real religious wounds. In church family, we can't ignore this. A, a lot of you had an authentic faith in Jesus, and therefore, when it happened to you, because I know there's a lot of you in this room, you were here in this church, having left a place that was important to you. But you got wounded, you got hurt, you got mistreated. And your response to that was to find another community where you could find healing 
experience the gospel, find grace. And I'm so thankful for those of you that's that part, that's part of your journey. We need your voice, and like when you're in community group or you're hanging out with people, we need your voice to look at people who are going through angst and church hurt and wounds and say, listen, I know sometimes the church hurts you, but Christ is good. Christ is good. But a lot of people, when they got hurt, when they got wounded, when they got tossed aside, when, when the truth of the gospel was not coupled with the compassion of Jesus, their response is, if this is what they believe and how they act, I'm out. And, and if we're serious about having conversations, about loving people and having conversations, we have to act like Jesus, which means we, we build relationships without the big goal being their conversion. The big goal is just to love and know people. And as we love and know people, as we enter into their space, we do it with great compassion, with, with gentleness and respect. And, and then we seek opportunities to share the reasons for the hope that is within us. We, we, like that's part of what needs to go on because you walk up to somebody who's got church hurt and you lead with a hard truth, they're gonna be like, yeah, no, I, you're, you're just as nuts as the rest of them. And listen, this is very real in our culture. Uh, that, you know, I don't know if you've paid attention, but Netflix has a new special on the Duggars, this crazy Christian family who actually protected a molester who was one of the sons. And it wasn't just the family. Their church and whole religious systems allowed this kid to keep abusing people. And that story has been told over and over in Christianity over the last 30 years. It was happening over and over way before that. But it has come to the forefront. You ended up with the Catholic Church. And now every religious group is having their moment where there's stories of, of monsters who just kept getting hired in churches as the youth or children's pastor. And the church knew what he'd done, but they just quietly fired him and sent him on his way. They'd go to the next church. They never called and never reported him, never sought somebody who, like, never turned him over to the police and never wrapped their arms around victims and said, we're sorry, we love you. He just kept protecting these people. That's what happened in that story. And now it's a Netflix special. And, and church family, I'm just telling you, we, we have to own that. We, we, we have to wrestle with that. That's a real thing for some 12-year-old kid to have the experience of having somebody that was supposed to be a spiritual leader do something horrible for us to expect them to go, but Jesus, and I think you're awesome. Like, there's going to be all kinds of trust and brokenness in our lives. We have to wade into that. And, and another reason is just this deep disagreement over like our morals, our values, our se- the, the sexual ethics that, that are in the Bible, the idea of exclusivity and doctrines of hell, things like that, that Christians we hold, a lot of people are just like, if you believe that, I have no interest. And, and what we have to do is find ways to have conversations again, loving conversations to try to explain why we believe the things we believe. Uh, last week's sermon was an example of how you might have a conversation with somebody who says, I just don't believe that Jesus is the only way. There's a good way to explain why Christians believe that and we don't believe that we have the best religion. That was my point last week. If you weren't here, watch the, the, the video or, or listen to the sermon. I tried to say, we do not believe that Christianity is the best religion. We do believe Jesus is the only Savior. That's two different things, right? Amen? And we can have that conversation, okay? And so uh, these are the reasons people have left church but, but is it good? Like, are we doing better because we have ditched ourselves from organized religion? And what is the gospel? What does the scripture have to say to us? Well, I, I want to take us this morning to an amazing passage of scripture in the book of Exodus, Exodus 34. If you have a Bible, turn, find that in your Bibles, flip the pages, find, you know, get your app. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible with you, or you don't have a Bible that's yours, there are baskets at, at, the, end, uh, at the end of a few of our rows that have Bibles in them. And we would love for you to grab one of those Bibles, uh, read along with us, and then that Bible can be our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible that's your own, we would love to give that to you as our gift. If you pick up one that's raggedy, put it back and find a good one and take it home with you, all right? Uh, But find a Bible, and that Bible will be on page 82, this amazing passage from the book of Exodus, chapter 34. What we're gonna read is this moment where, where God is talking to this man named Moses, Moses was the spiritual leader of the Hebrews, also known later, like we get to know them as the Israelites or the Jews. They had been in slavery in Egypt for generations. 
And then God does this miraculous act, this glorious story where he has rescued them from slavery. That story paints a picture of what God does. God saves people from slavery. He rescues us. And then he brought them to himself and he forms a relationship. Now that relationship is called a covenant. And covenant is a word that is used to describe a relationship that is formal between two people, kind of like a contract, but in covenants they were unbreakable and it stipulated the condition of a relationship. And so what God does is God brings this nation of people to himself and says, I love you, I saved you, I have acted for you, I'm going to have a relationship with you, I'm going to be involved in your lives, and I I want you to honor and trust and look to me, not to the gods of the nations around you. Now, every nation at this time around these people were polytheistic and pagan in their worship. In other words, they had created gods for themselves that gave them whatever they wanted but they never worked. And, and it was a horror, like they had horrible, like violence and power struggles and the, the seeking money. And here's this beautiful God of the Bible who steps in and saves the people, bring them to himself, and he forms a relationship with him. But what happens immediately when they do this is that the people end up on, on a single night building a new idol of a calf and having a one-night experience or multi-night, like this one experience where they literally break all of God's commandments. It's, it's like literally, there's 10 commandments in the Bible, they broke them all. And it started with them saying, God saying, no other God but me. And they were like, mm, we want to kind of mix you with the gods we like so we can come up with our own way to do this. And it's a devastating night in their story, but it creates a trajectory that actually helps us with this question. Because one of the things we need to know is we need to know that even those who claim the name of Jesus will act like pagans. Even those who claim the name of Jesus will act like they don't know Jesus. And sometimes it's just because we are so deeply broken and fallen that we just can't get out of our ways. And sometimes it's because people who who claim the name of Jesus really don't know Jesus. They really don't have a relationship with the creator. They're not being transformed by the power of the gospel. And so what happens is in our culture, like right now at this moment in our culture, You have these horrible stories, right? And so we have these horrible stories of abuse, of of, of mistreatment, of, of, of not caring and loving people who are image bearers of God in a way that honors Jesus. So we have Christians who do that. And along with that, we have social media where the loudest, most obnoxious that claim the name of Jesus are on social media making the loudest arguments, and we are known, like you in here are known by the failures and the loud mouths in the culture where the majority of people who love Jesus, who just claim the name of Jesus, are living faithful in their their, their lives. They're, They're being transformed by the gospel. They're active in their church. They don't get on social media except to look at pictures of other people. They're not ridiculous. They're not mean spirit. The majority of people who love Jesus, but we're not we're not being judged by the majority culture of Christianity. We're being judged by the loudmouth, obnoxious people and the massive failures right now, right? But the results are devastating in our culture as people bug out. And so what happens in this scripture is that these people who have failed, these people who have messed up, God meets with Moses and says, I'm not giving up on them. But they need to know me. They need to know me The answer, ultimately, to this question, are we better off without religion, is to understand that without the gospel and the church of Jesus Christ, we we don't know this God. We'll create our own version of God. Sadly, what's happened with this lady, while she's been hurt and wounded and walked away from the faith, she's also recreating God in the image she wants him to be. She is not finding the true and beautiful God. So God is the universe. God is praying to herself. That's sad. I just want to sit down and have coffee and tell her, I'm, I'm sorry. But Jesus is beautiful. And so when we read this, this is the one true and living God. He will show up in history as the person, Jesus Christ, who is our God. And listen to what he says. So Exodus chapter 34, this is the most quoted passage in all the Bible. It is quoted over 20 times and it is referenced hundreds and hundreds of times 
in the scripture. It is where God is looking at Moses and saying, go back to the people and tell them who I am and let's, let's make sure this relationship gets a restart. I'm not giving up. We're going to keep pursuing them and I'm going to, to continue to work in their lives and keep this relationship even though they have broken their end of the deal. And so listen to what he says. Verse uh, 4. Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. That's a reference to the Ten Commandments uh, and the tablets that had them. And he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. God came near, made himself known, was present. We're not talking about a distant God who is unknowable. We're talking about a a transcendent God who has come near and who reveals himself to us, who makes himself known. And the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Well, you see, if you're reading in in ESV or the translation we're in, you'll see the word Lord there is capitalized and it is just repeated over and over again. This is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is literally was given to Moses Moses, and without giving the whole story, it's a, it'd take me another 10, 15 minutes to unpack the whole story. But the bottom line is, God says, the world knows me as God, but I'm going to give you a special name that is just for people who know him. Like, we all have somebody in our life, our life who's a, like a Bubba, right? Everybody here know a Bubba? Nobody's mama named him Bubba. Or if they did, they were listening to way too much country music, just so you know. All right? But what happens is somebody started calling him Bubba or giving him a nickname, and all of a sudden you find this person who's like, my name is Ralph, but everybody calls me Bubba. My friends especially call me Bubba. And so you have this formal name, but there's a name that says my friends call me this. What God is saying is the world sees me. The world that doesn't know me understands there is a God, and they seek after me, and they know me. But my friends, I have a name for you. It's Yahweh. It it means I have a name that is for those who love me, who are in a relationship with me, who, who I have rescued, redeemed, and who are in covenant. And so he says, look at what he says. He says, verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. And, and now listen, this is the God who says, this is who I am. This is the central description of the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. If you were to sit down with this lady and say, listen, describe the God who was given to you in your religious experience. Would she tell you about this God? Or is the version of God that we're passing on to people some ogre in the sky with a crooked nose who's just pointing fingers and ready to blow people up? Well, God says, this is what I want to be known as. I am the God who is slow to anger, compassionate, merciful. I forgive sin. I'm gracious. I never give up. I keep pursuing. My steadfast love keeps going. My faithfulness keeps going. I, like, this is the God. Like, if you're here today and you know Jesus, you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the God you believe in. He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to blow you off. He loves you. He is merciful. He is compassionate. He is good. He is worth it. He says, I will forgive those, uh, those people. But then he goes on to say, verse 7, forgiving iniquity and transgression sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity on the fathers, of the fathers on the children, children's children, to the third and fourth generation. There it is. You're like, oh, see, I knew it was going to show up. God's going to get people. God is a God of justice. We're not denying that. that. That's an important truth, and we'll have to wrestle with that at another time. But just understand that justice is an expression of love in the Scriptures. Justice is a way to look at pedophiles and give them what they are due so that we can look at victims and say, because you matter. The most unloving thing you can do for somebody is to not give justice to the person who has offended them and hurt them. Justice is an expression of love. And and here's God saying, "I, I can't let people who just blow me off and walk away not experience justice. The the path of the world with a God who is without justice is where we're going, a world of mayhem and chaos where really injustice rules. And and so God says, listen, I'm not going to let things go unpunished, but my 
posture, my core posture, is to love you, to be for you, to pursue you. And if you run away from me, if you ignore me, if you, you ditch me, if you decide you don't want to have any part of me, it's going to have implications and consequences that will not just affect you, it will affect your, affect your kids, it will affect your grandkids, it will affect your great-grandkids. It's a real thing here, okay? And, and then Moses, what we see is Moses bowed his head and he worshipped toward the earth and worshipped. Said, if I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take, for us, take us for your inheritance. This is what Moses says. Moses says, I know you're good, but those people are awful. And if you don't go with us, there's no hope. There's no way out of this. Like, if you don't go with us, this is going to be a disaster. Because I know their hearts. Now, here, here's the central thing I want you to see in the text that raises and answers the question, or interacts with the question, aren't we better off without religion? And the simple answer is, there is one true and living God, and his benefits and his blessings and his goodness are beautiful and rich. And for so many of you in here, your life is a testimony of this God being slow to anger, merciful, forgiving, all right, let me say that again. Your life is a testimony of the God who is gracious and merciful and kind and forgiving. I should have got a few more amens. We're getting there. Your life is a testimony of this God and his grace, right? You could look at people and say, man, I know you've had bad experiences. You've been hurt, but I just want to tell you how good the Lord's been to me. I just want to tell you that, that I see my own sin and I see how messed up I really am. I see my failures and what I deserve and Christ has pursued me. I, I've gone through the darkest moments in my life, and I was never abandoned, and I always had a community that was alongside of me. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day. Like, right, you get it. And, and don't get angry, but we can tell people that what this text says is true, but here's what's happened in the last 20 years and it's growing momentum. What God says about himself, which is, I'm good, I'm not gonna give up on you. If you will come into covenant, if you will live in relationship with me, if you will be part of the community. By the way, one of the things that happens is that God saves a person and saves them into a people. You don't get one without the other. Sadly, what this sweet woman is expressing is not the way God works in the world. He always saves an, a person and puts them in a people who are a saved community. And the reason he does it this way is because the saved community then represent God in the world around them. I, I really can't represent God in the world, but we can. We together are a saved community, a rescued community, who together, by putting me in this community with you and putting you in this community with me, we can represent Christ in this city together, right? Amen? And so, so he never saves a person without saving them to a people. It, it just doesn't happen. Nowhere in the Bible will that ever take place. But what's happened is that we have all these people who now do tons of research, just tons of research, research after research after research. And this is what the research is clearly saying. You, I'm going to tell you, if you read Rebecca McLaughlin's book, she's going to help you put this into a little more framed argument. But the research is solid, consistent over the last 15 years, this movement away from church is a disaster. Now, correlation, massive correlation that has happened. The decline in church attendance has been coupled to, has been coupled to massive rise in almost every negative health metric we can find. Mortality rates among people in our country, uh, Rates of, of, of depression, rates of, of drug use and interaction, rates of alcoholism, rates of suicide, they have all climbed. Now, you can say, well, causality uh, and, and, uh, uh, and correlation are two different things, right? Just because two things, you know, like, like my son said, all right, uh, there, this is true. The, there is a correlation between ice cream sales and violent crime in America. Now, is the reason people are committing violent crime because they go get ice cream? The answer is no. 
Cause, correlation doesn't always mean that there is a cause. Uh, the reason there is a rise in both ice cream sales and violent crime is because consistently both go up in the summer. There you go. There's the connection. So is this a correlation or is there a causality? But here's what's happened. The studies have taken a step further and they have studied people who are irreligious, who have left church, and they have studied people who have stayed in church and who are committed and connected and are regularly attending a worship service who have a belief in God that is shaping their lives. And this is what they're finding consistently, that on every single metric, people who are in church are vastly more healthy than people who are not. The rates of, of mental health, of suicide, of strong families, of, of purpose and meaning in life, the rates of drug use. I mean, every single metric out there is looking, saying, come to me, stay with me, I will bless you, run from me, and, and it, it, it's not going to go well. And every single metric of these things is, is growing so that what's happening is that we are seeing that the, the implications of this are significant in our culture. And this is not one study. It's been multiple studies, multiple articles, multiple publications all over the place, from pre-research to Barna to articles that have been published in USA Today and Time Magazine over the last several years that are saying, listen, leaving church was not a good idea. It's harming your children deeply. And those who stay in church and stay connected and stay involved live happier lives. Now we're closer to, yeah, that's what we should have expected. I don't even know, need to go to the Bible to actually look at people and go, it's a bad idea. It's not going to go well. But the Bible gives us a framework to tell us why. So what is it that we get from the, the, the faith? What are the benefits? And there's all kinds. Like I could list hundreds today. I just want to share with you real quick four benefits that we actually experience in our lives that are both biblical and researched. Okay, biblical and research. The first one is purpose. That, that what happens when I look to this God, I understand I do not live for myself. I was not created by myself. I'm not the center of existence, but I have purpose and meaning in life. Like, like we have purpose that is outside of ourselves. Our whole culture's narrative is, you want to find purpose, look within. Live for yourself. But what's happening is that we, you, like we all, have, every person is spiritual. Even the secular atheist has something they are basing their life on that is at the center of their existence that is what gives them purpose and meaning in life. But the pursuit of the one true and living God gives you something that is outside of yourself that is better. The, the, the narrative of Jesus is not the narrative of centering on yourself and finding your own destiny. The narrative of Jesus says we give ourselves away sacrificially for something that is way bigger than me. And all of a sudden, I have something, someone, a purpose, a beautiful meaning. I have something to live for. Jesus pictured this in a story he told. So here's Jesus. One of, he told these things called parables. And one of the parables he told was about two guys who built houses, okay? One guy built a house that was on this beach. Man, great beach, but he had a, it had a sand, the sand of the beach for its foundation. Another guy didn't quite get as close to the beach, didn't quite get as close to the water, but he built the same type of house, the same building company came and built it for him. They, but he built it up on a rock that had a solid foundation. And what happened is that, man, the guy on the beach was having a great time. He was going out in his Bermuda shorts, drinking margaritas and Mai Tais. It was great until the storm came. When the storm showed up in his life, it was like the house was built, the money was invested, but the foundation did not hold the weight of the house and it crumbled. Meanwhile, the guy who built his house on the rock with the solid foundation, that storm came. It was the same storm, but he withstood the day. Now, what's Jesus trying to say? Listen, we build our lives. We go about our, our business. We think our lives are going to be better if we do this, this that, or the other. Here's, here's what we built. But what is underlying our lives, the purpose, the meaning, the foundation of our lives is the thing that will make a difference when the storm shows up. When the storm shows up, if you don't have something you were living for outside of yourself, then when you hit things that are bigger than you, the only resource you have is looking within. And looking within, it, you will crumble under the weight of it. But oh, the glory of Jesus when he sustains us and holds us in the storm because our purpose and meaning was outside and bigger than me. We have purpose. Second thing we, we find that people have is peace. Like I said, one of the craziest byproducts of, of this whole thing is understanding 
that there had been a rise in all these metrics. And uh, an article that was from USA Today where Tyler J. Vanderweel and John Siniff wrote this article in USA Today. And I want you to listen to their words. They are not necessarily believers. And they're writing in a really secular newspaper. But it was based on, the article's based on research, and listen to what they said. If one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would our society place on it? In other words, if we could find something that if you just by drinking it once a week, it would improve our mental and emotional health and our physical health. If we could do that, what would we invest in it? Going a step further, if research quite conclusively showed that when consumed just once a week, this concoction would reduce mortality by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period, how urgently would we want to make it publicly available? The good news is that there, there is a miracle drug. Religion, and more specifically, regular church attendance, is already in the reach of most Americans. In fact, there's a good chance it's just a short drive away. What? You don't think that's something that some religious nut job like, you know, people in the church are right. In USA Today, saying, listen, there is an elixir that will make your life better. Get to church. Wake up. Get your family ready. Get going. And why? Because there is a peace, a beauty in our lives that when life gets hard and things are depressing. Listen, I'm not trying to say that you're not going to be depressed in church. I'm not, gonna, not trying to say that you're not going to go through really hard things. I'm not trying to say that there's not going to be darkness and hard moments. What I am saying is the, in the gospel and the community of faith, there is a peace in those times that even when you are crumbling, you will have a Savior who is with you and a people who carry you through and you will find peace. I just want people to know, like people who are in my neighborhood to go, what you've abandoned is huge. I don't know how people, like how people make it in these moments when they are dealing with the brokenness of life. My job as, as a pastor has required me to sit with people in their hardest, hardest moments. I, I have been the first person to a home when a family member took their own life. A daughter, a sister, and hugged as they cried and didn't know how to make sense of it. I, I have been in the home with people right after they came home from the doctor and said, yeah, it's cancer and it's not good. I have been in, I mean, myriads of people's hardest, darkest moments. And I'm just telling you, I don't know how people who don't have Jesus in the community of faith make it. In fact, I've watched as so many of them don't. Been to funerals filled with people who lost a loved one who had their church and their parents' church. Like, this was our story twice last year. The hope of Christ and the resurrection and the funeral, while being super painful, was also deeply beautiful. And I've, I've been to funerals where I got called by a funeral home because they had nobody to preach the funeral and showed up, and there's five people to mourn the loss of somebody who's just a miserable cuss, and they're not sure what to do with it, but they're broken, and they're not sure where to go. I don't, I don't know how people do it. There is a peace in Christ, and you find that peace by being with his people and hearing the voice of Christ in this. There is beauty in the peace of God. The third thing is we have forgiveness. This is in the text. Listen, it's not hard. Like, we can, we can hymn and holler and yell. The culture can try to justify what's going on in our lives, but deep down inside, we feel the weight of shame and guilt. And when our remedy is, well, I'm just going to go through self-improvement and I'm going to atone for my own sins, I'm going to make my life better. Like, we're disasters at that. But the cross of Jesus says, come to me and I will forgive you, I will deal with your shame, I will absorb the, the penalty, I, I, I'm here, just come to me. 
the gospel is the only place where we find the beauty of forgiveness and the hope that is there. Listen, I, I know the miserable cuss that I am. I'm thankful for Jesus because there is no hope. I, I cannot conjure up the, the willpower to overcome my brokenness, nor do I have the inner strength to look at myself and the, the things that, that I am ashamed of and try to make sense. But I know Christ has dealt with that, and we get this. And the fourth thing I'll tell you is that we have community. We have community. We, there is a people. I'm saved to a people, and I have you. And it's some of you who showed up in our hardest moments. It's my community group. I love my group so much. And, and, and we have walked through life together, and there's been moments where I was the one, my family was the one who needed presence. And the, the, my community, my community group, my church, my, my community of faith became the presence of Jesus in those hard times. And then there's times where it's my turn. And it's just been a beautiful thing. And this is what happens. This is the God who we see in the scripture who does this. And, and I'm just telling you there are massive benefits. And we need to know it. We need to hold on. When you, if you get wounded, don't run from church. Don't run from Jesus. You may need to leave the church you're in and find a place where you can get healing. Sometimes that has to happen. It shouldn't be easy. Church hopping like, we have people leaving churches. We also have people every time, like, every third week, they're like, well, I didn't like this this week, so I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go over here. No, find a community of faith. Live with it. God saves you as a person. He puts you in a people. Find that people. Find a family. Find a, a place where they're preaching Jesus and making much of him, and then plug in and give your life to that. It will make your, it, it will make your life better. You know why? Because it will connect you to the God who is. Trust him. Hold on to him. And as you're having conversations Point them both to the data and the beauty of your Savior while you have crazy compassion for them. We should not be mad at our culture about this. But we should be broken. Because the truth of the matter in the lives of these people, the first generation that disconnected from church, are charting a life course for their kids and their grandkids, and their great-grandkids. This is why we need to keep being in our neighborhoods and communities and loving them. This is why we need to do Kids Club in the summer and have opportunities to invite uh, children in our neighborhoods to come hear about Jesus. Because a lot of people, the first time, like generations ago, the way they found Christ is the way my dad found Christ, which was a woman knocking at his door in a family that had quit going to church and said, well, I'd like to take you and your uh, uh, you and your sister. My dad's five, she's seven. I'd like to invite you to go to church. And my dad and my sister hopped in this lady's car. She took him to church on a Sunday morning and my dad met Jesus. Changed the trajectory of my life and the life of my whole family. Because some lady knocked on a door and said, I know your family doesn't go to church. Will you go with me? Let's be those people. By the way, what happened the next Sunday is my grandpa said, I really am not going to let some other woman take my kids to church. That's my job. And my grandma and grandpa went to church because of that invite, and they met Jesus too, and it changed everything. Let's be those people, right? Let's love these people who are struggling and hurting because they've been wounded in church and feel the weight of that wound and tell them, but Jesus is better. He is worth it. And so if you're here today, and you're like on the cusp of going, I think I'm out. I I don't think I can do religion anymore. I just want to tell you, look, Run to Jesus and let us help you do that, okay? And if you're here today and you love Jesus and you're like, I, everything I said, I just want to amen it, although we're uh, a good evangelical, you know, conservative group of people who don't like to say things out loud, so I get it, but inside you're like, yes, 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 okay? Uh, let, let, let's amen this and let's figure out how to lovingly engage our neighbors and people with this. Buy the book and read it. Interact with her arguments. You, it will give you great things to say. By the way, one last thing I'm, I'm going to say, and we're going to transition to communion, is that each week we produce a family worship sheet. And, and so it's available to you in a sheet. But we also put that sheet out with some resources every week on our online community, Koinonia, and on the Genesis blog. One of the things I'm doing in this series is that Rebecca McLaughlin, Uh, has this amazing podcast that is called Confronting Christianity where she talks, like she has a conversation with this other guy named Kyle Worley and sometimes some guests about the topics from this book. 
And I'm, each week, I'm linking in that post. So if you're part of Genesis, you'll get an email. If not, you just go to Genesis blog. In that email, I'm linking the podcast on this topic. So you can go find that podcast. Listen to it this week. So read the book, and then you get to listen to that great British accent again for like 45 minutes. And it, it, just that enough will make you, your heart happy and make you feel better about the world, all right? And, but it will, it will be a blessing to you. And so uh, that's why we're here. And we're here because this God sent his son Jesus who died on the cross for us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate this by coming to the Lord's table this morning. So our band's going to come up here and is going to lead us in a time of lifting our voices to Christ, of, of celebrating Jesus, of worshiping him. And while we do this during the first song, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. What this is is, is a, a gift that Jesus gave his church for us to repent of our sin and remember what he did for us. That, that what should happen here is if you are a, a baptized follower of Jesus— who's repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in him. This table is open for you. We want to encourage you to, that, that if you are a baptized follower of Jesus, in the next few minutes just prayerfully can, uh, contemplate what Jesus did for you, confess your sin and repent, and then when you're ready during this song, come celebrate this with us. And if you're here today and you are like, I, I don't know, or I, I haven't followed Jesus yet, or I, I'm curious about what that means, at this moment, we'd encourage you just right where you are, think about this. And I would love to have a conversation with you, or we will have people over here in this corner at the end of the service who can talk to you, who can pray with you, who can interact with you. I want to invite you that while we celebrate communion, you consider Jesus who loves you, who gave his life for you. And don't leave here today without a conversation with somebody who can point you to what it means to trust, place your faith and trust in Jesus today, okay? During this time, we will be taking up an offering. Those who give, you can, take it, it, you can give in the baskets up here. Uh, if you're a guest, we don't ask or expect you to give. This service is our gift to you, uh, but it's part of what we do. We respond by giving. We respond by repenting and trusting and believing in Jesus. We respond with communion this morning. Paul wrote this. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We get to death together to celebrate the Lord's table, to proclaim his death, and be reminded that he's coming again. And we're going to do that. So we invite you to the table of the Lord as a response to what you've heard as you repent and believe in Jesus. Lord, we love you today. We praise you for the fact that there are incredible benefits to knowing you, incredible benefits to having a people, incredible benefits to church. We mourn and grieve and even repent of the times where we have been part of the problem of hurting and wounding people, of not being compassionate, of, of using things like social media like a bully pulpit rather than a place where, where we can just kind of express the kindness and gentleness and beauty of Jesus. And, and we just pray that you will bring revival and awakening to our city and our world. Draw people back to yourself and back to the church. And may they find grace at the foot of the cross. Lord, as we consume and we come take partake of the Lord's table, May it change us today. In your name I pray. Amen.